Because I got so much clit, I don't need no balls. Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to teenage daydreams. I am one of your hosts, Sarah, and I am joined by my electric co-host, Robin. (laughs) Hi, Robin. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm all right. We're recording on a Friday, so who can complain, right? Yeah, I'm looking. It's a movie night. So my kids are both at drop-off playdates right now. Ooh. So other people are entertaining them. Nice. <laughs> and uh, what's giving you a fuck yeah right now? All right. So you know how my basement flooded? We yes. already talked about this. In the wetness, one of the things that I pulled out was a journal. It is from 1993. <laughs> You attaching the year, assigning the year to it is amazing. Yeah. I mean, so I'm either 13 or 14, depending on the time of this year uh, that I found this. So you can see like the pages are all wavy. I, I, I carefully dried them with putting a paper towel in between each page <sighs> and letting it, I looked it up how to do it. And, you know, I had to take the binding off and everything. And there's a lot of unused pages, but let me tell you, there's some gems in here. And it got me to thinking, well, shit, I think I have some other journals in there too. And so I've started down this rabbit hole of rereading my journals. And let me tell you, I've never done this. I've never read any of these since I made them because I always felt an embarrassment about who I was as a teenager. I'm 43 now. So this one where I'm 13, I mean, that's 30 fucking years ago, right? That's the right math. So (laughs) your math is good. Your math is solid. Thank you. Thank you. And it's, you know, and then I had therapy this morning. (laughs) So it's like, I ended up talking about these journals because I mean, I'm going to I'm going to share some of the more lighthearted gems, but overall rereading them, it was such an introspection because I've been dealing with my mental health so heavily the past couple years and particularly this year and particularly dealing with it on this podcast. And I I don't always share like all of the stuff that I've been going through, but this podcast has been really instrumental in my healing process and I'm in a pretty good spot now, finally, like really in the last two weeks, I think I might have, after reading my journals, the best mental health I've ever had in my life, (laughs) because like there's some grim darkness in these journals. Do you feel like there's a message that's coming through to you from them that is has helped you turn a corner or make it through like over a hump or what do you think is attributing to the last couple of weeks feeling clear? Well, I think my meds are right is part of it. I mean, that's always very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> the past couple of weeks I started a new medication and it has been very good for me. I, the depression is way 
lighter. I just feel lighter. It's easier for me to concentrate and accomplish things. It's really, I've been feeling productive and not under this weight that I've just been so used to. I mean, I've obviously been dealing with it for about 30 years and maybe even before that, before I started journaling, because I remember not being a very happy kid. Like Max was asking me a while ago, he's like, what are some of your happy memories from your childhood? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> you know, so, but I remember being a teenager and it really hitting me hard. And, you know, to the point where I was in the 90s in therapy and on uh, medication at that time. And it didn't work well for me at that time. And the medication then was just a shit show. I mean, I was on like Prozac and stuff and it was just like not great for me. But I think that I had such a little understanding of where the depression was coming from when I was that age that it felt like, well, my life hasn't been that bad. Why do I feel this way? I don't know. There's just something wrong with me. Mm. And then I was even thinking about the because, you know, this podcast has been like a journal. And I was thinking about that first episode that we even titled Chasing the Feeling. Mm -hmm. And now I've come to realize that that chasing the feeling is me not just chasing, but kind of running away from the sadness, which is what I had been doing by not by avoiding reading those journals. It wasn't just that I was embarrassed of who I was. It was more that I think I knew there was some deep sadness there that I have never addressed. And so now I feel like I'm really starting to address these core child wounds and starting to reparent the little girl, which we've talked about. And now I'm like, oh, there's this teenager that really needs some fucking advice. Okay, I have this one that I can read you where I am crushing on this guy. And it is just one red flag after another. And I just want to be like, girl, run from this. This is not this is not the guy for you. You know, so but I'm excited To have gone through this process, realized these things about myself. I mean, it's really a 30-year process that has led up to this moment. Um, And you've been a part of it. And the listeners have been part of it. And um, I'm excited to share a few of these things and just kind of, you know, relish a bit in the 90s. (laughs) And, And in like kind of just that coming into one's sexuality and how clumsy it is and funny in retrospect, but also showing some love and kindness to our teenage selves. You know, some of the most difficult people to love and show kindness towards, you know. I love it. I want to dive in. All right. Where where shall we begin? So this is November 15th, 1993. So I am 14. It says, Dear Diary, Well, I'm sitting here at my desk, stark naked. I just got done masturbating. Whenever I masturbate, I do it under the water faucet in my tub. I've tried it with my fingers, but I get nothing out of it but stinky fingers. (laughs) (laughs) So immediately, I I think that's, I'm going to critique this all the way through, okay? Okay, okay, okay. I think that is internalized shame right there. Yeah. You know, 
Okay. Well, I think it's also, I mean, you have spoken to this like quality to your younger self of having a certain level of indifference mm-hmm. to, you know, fit in with the guys or shame folks who have more traditionally feminine behaviors. Yeah. I mean, our body odors, I think that this is something that is so interesting about things like ripe play or people who are really interested in playing with like bodily fluids is that it is that real stripping down to your essential animalness by interacting with our smells, our fluids, all of those kinds of things. And so as a teenager to have embraced that, that's a, that is a pretty high expectation. Oh yeah. I, and also the embodiment, like, I think this was a real low point for embodiment for me. Mm-hmm. But I will say I was not writing in diaries about masturbating. So I'm like, <laughs> you have always said that you feel like you missed out on a whole bunch of years of masturbating. But for you to just be like, dear diary. <laughs> so it's like, there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sitting in my bedroom naked writing. So <laughs> I like it. So I say, you know, stinky fingers. And then I write, you know what, I'm going to start writing in cursive. So and then the rest of this is in cursive. <laughs> anyway, I think it would be nice to have a vibrator, then I could see what it's like to have a real dick. Then when I do have sex, my hymen will already have been broken. And I'll know what it's like to have an orgasm. So <laughs> some real misinformation going on. But you know, some solid ideas. But it's one of those things where I'm like, Oh, I wish I could talk to this girl. And just be like, girl, let's talk about this. And I will get you the right vibrator. And let's talk about your smells. And let's talk about what a hymen is and what an orgasm is. I mean, this is probably about as sexually actualized as any 14 year old is in like you were probably ahead of the curve. Yeah. Even just in considering a vibrator. I mean, none of us had those aunties in our lives being like, you know, these are ways to explore your body and discover what your erogenous zones are. Oh, and by the way, penetration probably is not going to be it. So it's good Mm -hmm. to find ways to have orgasms that are not dependent on a partner. Yeah. So in thinking about 1993, so what would have my options been? For vibrators? Like what was out? Like Tantus was 95 or 97, mm-hmm. right? When did Tantus come I mean, out? I don't think that Fun Factory was out yet. I think that Doc Johnson had sex toys. Yeah. And they were but they were real jelly. Yeah, and they were a whole bunch of like realistic dicks. You would have gotten a bullet vibrator. I think I would have gotten a slimline, like a plastic yep. slimline. Oh, the old days. So, all right, let's see. And then I'll know what it's like to have an orgasm. When I masturbate, I don't think I have an orgasm. I mean, I have a climax, but it's nothing to beat a stick at. It may be an orgasm, but then again, how the hell would I know? All right. So I go on to describe this story that I read in my stepbrother's Hustler that is basically a man that works at a butcher shop and has a fantasy 
about a woman who comes in and it has like a level of grossness to it. And there's a level of a little bit of non-consent involved, not directly with the woman, but what he does with the meat he's supposed to grind up for her. And I don't know, it's just, it's interesting to have this be my main fantasy at this time. I don't know, I'm just really trying to unpack and digest that this was my 14-year-old go-to fantasy. So in the story in Hustler, this person has a fantasy about a woman and then what plays out? Well, she needs some meat ground up and he is aroused by her. So he takes it in the back and basically fucks her meat and imagines her that he's fucking her on the butcher block. And that's like the fantasy that I was masturbating to. It fed me for a long time. But that was also like, this is early 90s. So you would get these little snippets of things. This is like, I did not have a computer. I wasn't you know, even if I did, you would be like downloading one picture at a time very slowly. I mean, this was like before I had an email. It's just that era when you would go through your brother's or your dad's drawer next to his bed or look between the mattresses and see what you could find. Like, I remember going into my parents' room when they weren't home and finding their porn and watching like the same very specific porns over and over again. This is your only outlet. A lot of my education was from that. You know, my mom talked to my brother and I very early on about sex, but just the basics of it, like how it worked. And then everything else about arousal and um, and actually interacting with people, I just learned from porn or hustlers. I've had for so long, only until recently, have I kind of let go of the sexual fantasies that are degrading towards women it's always been a part of it for me. And recently I've just been like, wait, what? I've never been that self-critical of it. And now I'm just like, why do I have this? I mean, I know why I do, but I'm trying to get myself out of that and just involve my sexuality with my own pleasure and my own desire rather than this kind of fed to me patriarchal kind of Weird. I mean, I don't want to like be down on anybody's fantasies at all. But just for me personally, I feel like I'm moving on from it. And for a long time, it was such a big part of my identity of kind of like a hard sexuality. And I'm really trying to get into this like softer, more about embodiment, like we've been talking about more about pleasure and not about this kind of brutalist male fantasy. I would imagine, and, you know, without like sharing other people's stories, you are not the only person that I has told me that finding like penthouse or hustler or porn of some kind that was geared towards men was an early mm -hmm. introduction to sex and sexuality. And I think that whenever we're introduced with sexual material at either a stage where our sexual development is happening or perhaps before that process has really started, um, sort of physiologically, 
there is an imprinting mm -hmm. that happens in our sexual scripts. So for so many of us to have been influenced by male dominated, non-consent based, sort of animalistic, like that story is incredibly animalistic. And there's actually nothing wrong with that being somebody's fantasy. Right. But the problem is, is that those male fantasies that are rooted in total domination dominate our narrative around sexuality yeah. and any of the media that is created around sex and sexuality. And so in that way, we are heavily influenced kind of without any agency. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with having desires towards rough sex. And in fact, like you may come out on the other side of this and find that some of those fantasies still carry forward for you. But I definitely think it's interesting to unpack that stuff and figure out like, is this actually essentially what I desire or is this the culture that is patriarchal and violent and oppressive that's feeding me these fantasies? Yeah. There is something else from your journal that stood out to me, which I unfortunately have no journals from my youth. I wish I did because this would be so fun to go back and forth. Robin at 14, Sarah at 14, but I never kept anything. And then I, you know, to this day, hardly keep things. So you mentioned that you don't even know if you're orgasming from yeah. self-pleasure. And I remember an argument that a friend of mine and I had when I, I was probably 17, you know, a lot of my friends were having sex already and I wasn't. And obviously it's, I was, you know, pretty confused about my sexuality and it took me a long time to get there. But I did finally my senior year of high school meet someone that I was really attracted to. We had great chemistry he was orthodox and really didn't want to have sex. So we would just do a lot of making out and nipple play. And I absolutely orgasmed from nipple stimulation. Well, and you had mentioned before in another podcast that nipple stimulation is too much for you. Was that not true at the time? I think that, I think that there were a few things going on. I think that like there was such a high level of arousal that would happen in our makeout sessions that then it sort of opened the door for nipple play, which has kind of always been true for me. But I think actually some of like his shame around sexuality and like he had a lot of religious baggage and all that kind of stuff built in. I think actually that that might have solidified some of my nipple issues is that there was that really early, those early sexual encounters where, and he was a total misogynist too, by the way, like he was just, oh, he was yeah. really mean to me. And so I think that the things like there was like that perfect talking about sexual scripts, that thing of like, there was then also a little bit of a negative association with that kind of stimulation because it had been mm, sort of so intense. Right. But I remember sharing with my good friend who was having 
quote unquote sex, we're having this conversation around like, what is sex? And to her, penis and vagina sex was the only kind of sex that was valid. It was real sex. She was really like shaming me and telling me that there was no way that I was actually having orgasms, that I didn't know what I was talking about. Basically, what my boyfriend and I were doing was not legit and or in any way potentially orgasmic. Yep. (laughs) So it's like, you know, it's like the blind leading the blind. Yeah. But I also feel like there's some like kind of deeply ingrained misogyny that's in there, right? We've been trained that only certain kinds of sexual activities are acceptable by means or legitimate or legitimate penis and vagina sex is the only legitimate way to enjoy pleasure. And of course, we know that that benefits male partners and really disadvantages female partners because very few women get off through vaginal penetration alone. It is so interesting how these early messages, conversations, encounters that we have around our sexuality are so heavily policed by like all these other factors. Yeah. And how it's so often policed by other women. Oh, yeah. You know, you're talking about that happening with a peer and we're all just like telling each other how it is and none of us know what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah. And can you imagine if we, like I had brought that to my friend and she had just been curious about it? Like, oh, really? Like, I've never tried that. That could have been like a cool thing that we shared. And it could have almost been like a skill sharing moment, which is something that has happened yeah. to me later in life where like friends have shared and I've had the opportunity to share like, oh, I tried this and it was really cool. And um, just the difference of like a sex positive approach and mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was so before sex positivity. This That just wasn't a thing that people said, you know. Ugh. All right. This is from March 1994. So I'm still 14. I say, sometimes I think I'm a lesbian, maybe just bisexual, because I look at women the same way I look at men. Like right now, I have a big crush on this bitch. <laughs> She's so beautiful, but has her flaws. Her name is Courtney. I will not pursue her for a few reasons. One, she can be greedy and rude at times. Two, she's too beautiful for me. Three, say I did ask her out. It would go all around school that I was gay. That sounds stupid because in a sense I am, but I would lose a lot of friends. Everyone would think that I don't like guys. All of my girlfriends would wonder why I want to come over to their house this weekend. People in the locker room would wonder what I was thinking as we changed together. I can't really help being attracted to Lael, who I'm still friends with. I had a big crush on her in high school. She has the most beautiful body. Sometimes when we're wrestling, I pin her down or vice versa. I just want to kiss her. I've thought about it so many times. One time I almost did. The doors were playing the song, The End. There is this one part where Jim says, mother, I want to fuck you. While that was playing, Lael was crawling towards me and lip syncing. If she hadn't cracked up, I would have kissed her. Thank God she laughed. 
I've got to finish cleaning my room, Robin. Oh, (laughs) if you were a teenager now, I would be pansexual. I would be all the days and thems right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's so interesting that that's like a thing that you were. I mean, I think of you as being a very queer spirit even though you predominantly or almost exclusively have intimate relationships with cis dudes. And yeah, like you knew that about yourself, but you were like containing it. That is, that's such a great journal entry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real winner. (laughs) Well, and you know what, reading that I'm kind of like, am I bisexual? Later I have a girlfriend in college, but then it didn't work out with her. And a lot of this journal is about breaking up with her and how bad it goes. It goes real bad. And, you know, like there's this stuff where I'm like, I'm kissing her and I don't feel anything. I think I'm straight. And so that's just was my conclusion since that relationship. Mm. And now I'm sitting here going, maybe I just kind of did a hard conclusion on myself. Like the way kids are today, these Gen Zs or whatever the next generation is going to be. It's so not about having to have these hard labels. Mm -hmm. And at that time it was, you needed a hard label. Like, are you in this group or that group? And now I'm like, I think I would just want to be much more fluid. I think I really tied myself down to one team. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be my wish for all people, right? I mean, I had kind of the opposite experience where I was really sort of asexual, also kind of thinking that something was wrong with me. But in Mm -hmm. retrospect, I had so many female friends, girls who would court me (laughs) and I was completely oblivious to it. And I'm so sad that I missed out on all that sluttiness because I didn't feel like I fit into whatever that box was. So it was my senior year of high school and I was assistant directing the musical at Beverly Hills High School, Mm -hmm. which was a very big musical theater school. And my friend was playing Dolly in Hello, Dolly. And we just had a blast together and we would party together and she was so super high femme. And so, of course, totally off my radar. Right. Right. She leaves for the summer. I think she went to some sort of musical theater camp and she's writing me these like really hot love letters, basically about like kind of her escapades and like how much fun I would be having if I were there with her. And then somewhere in the course of the summer, she prompts me to send her photos like sexual photos? Yes. She would give me direction on how I should pose and like what would be good to show in the photos because quote unquote, she wanted to show them to all the boys that she was flirting with. Oh my God. I mean, I totally did it. I have no idea where these photos are. There's definitely titty shots out there in the world. Lots of young Sarah just being like, this is just friendly, right? (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Okay. So how did you do the, how did you make these photos though? Are these Polaroids? 
I had a Polaroid. I also took a lot of photos when I, I have a lot of self portraits from like my late teen and early 20 years, uh, where I would, uh, you know, position a camera or have, um, those little clicker things, yeah, clicker things. But yes, I would take Polaroids for her and put them in the mail and send them to her. Yeah. Cause it's not like you could just take a phone photo and Mm-mm. text it to her. Because you also couldn't get film photos most of the time. You had to go to a special place to get naughty ones. Yeah, yeah. Developed. I, I, uh, I, I, there are some good Polaroids out there. Seventeen-year-old <sighs> Sarah, some real gems. She was absolutely jacking off to those photos. There were no boys. That's hilarious. If if you're out there, if you have these Polaroids of Sarah, please take a picture and send it to us. Yeah, we would love to know. I'm sure they're. They're amazing. Okay, so I have a couple of poems that I would like to share. Yeah. (laughs) So now we're in January of 1997. So I am 17. A very, a much older, more sophisticated person. I was kind of impressed with this one. All right. Daydreams turn to fantasies, turn to realities, turn to ecstasies, turn to disappointments, turn to nightmares. I only know one man. He wears many masks. He's all I think about. He's what I want. Whoa. Pretty deep, pretty deep. What does that <laughs> um, poem conjure for you? What is the, what's the what's what's happening there? I mean, the thing of I only know one man, he wears many masks. He's all I think about. He's what I want. I mean, in retrospect, I'm like, how at 17 am I able to see my own patterns? Everybody seems so different and new when you get into a a new relationship. And they are. I mean, they're different people. They're new people. But there's a certain quality to the people that I choose that I'm learning has to do with my unhealed wounds and my chasing the feeling and all of those things that it's just pointing out the similarities and the chasing the feelings things, you know, the, the daydreams, the fantasies, realities, ecstasies, disappointments, and nightmares. I don't know. What do you see? I think that there's a very fatalistic. Yeah. (laughs) In that those descriptors where it is sort of a pretty pessimistic I didn't realize at first that it was about men and relationships. Yeah. Uh, I thought maybe it was more about your internal world, but perhaps the men and the relationships are this distractor from those things. I don't, I don't really know, but the young Robin take on relationships with men is pretty disappointing. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. Reading through this has been a journey in itself. And in a way, I can feel my own liberation from these things. I feel a lot of sadness for who I was, but I'm also kind of impressed with my fightiness in a way. And I was definitely as brash, I think, as I am now. Like I try to tone down the brashness a little bit, but I was a lot of just kind of saying gnarly stuff. Many of us get trained from a young age that there is like a hierarchy of relationships. Actually, what is the Mm -hmm. Billie Eilish song that came out a few years ago? It's like future self. There's something very much that's like a, a reclaiming 
I think particularly of like the young female experience where it's just mm-hmm. like relationships are not my end goal. And right. I remember the first time I listened to it being like, wow, has this generation finally started to shift a little bit? Because I think that our young teenage selves are so oriented around who are we in relationship to other people, particularly people who of the opposite sex for the most part, but like, or people I can be in relationship with. Yeah. And so, you know, do you feel like that was your orientation as a young person? A hundred percent. It was the message I got from my parents. They rarely had friends. It was always about finding that one person that you were in a relationship with. I had to learn about friends from you guys from queer people because I didn't get it. And my biggest aspiration was not about like career, anything jobs was completely secondary to finding that relationship. And then it's like every fucking movie is about finding that relationship, especially ones geared towards teenagers. It's like relationship, relationship, relationship. So it was, I was single minded about it. Yeah. I want to hear your other poem, but I want to share something. Oh, please, please. Yeah, because I think it kind of relates. So you know that I have taught with Anne Hottership. We had her on the podcast. Uh, Love Anne. Like mid-season author of the Modern Love Languages book, also a certified sex educator. We do a four-week course called Pleasure Attitudes Reassessment. Mm. And at the end of that course, you write a letter to your younger self. And this is a practice. And, you know, that class is very much geared towards unpacking, like whatever is not serving you in terms of your relationship to pleasure, whether it's relationship based or blocks around having a, you know, really good relationship with yourself, all sorts of stuff. We do a lot of like one-on-one work with people. But so as part of developing this class, I did this exercise and I really super encourage people to do this. It is so interesting what comes up when you think about what is the message that your younger self needed and it can be in like any particular area of your life I can't wait to hear yours because I definitely after reading all of this I'm like oh I really need I that's all I'm thinking about is I wish I could talk to this girl yeah yeah and I I I think some things that came up for me were kind of about that seeking or perhaps it's the fairy tale narrative that there's, I've actually taught my therapist and I have mentioned this, like there is no white knight who is coming. Mm. And by white knight, I mean like, you know, a good, a good versus evil. Um, You know, you are your own knight. You are your Mm -hmm. own savior. And that was really a hard, that was, some hard work for me to unpack that. And I think that young Sarah was really, really wrapped up in in, um, that story. So I'm going to read my letter. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait. I am all ears. To my youngest self. It's a little long, but, um, you know, I'll be curious what your take on it is. My dearest Sarah, I want you to know above all else that you will fuck up. 
and you will still be loved. Most importantly, you will be loved by me, your future mm. self. Imagine me on a cliff top, overlooking the Colorado River, gazing back at you. I've paddled that river upstream and climbed up to this great height. I am fit, powerful, confident, and also deeply flawed. From this height, I can tell you, your great journey is not winning the love of an absent father. Your path is not about being chosen by caregivers who are busy fighting their own battles. Your job is not to heal the wounded lovers or to be the best at anything. I'm already like almost in tears, Sarah. This is really wonderful and intense. I hate to tell you, but putting more work into your relationships, your work, or any of your endeavors is a big old distraction from working on yourself. Your mm. job, as I see it, is to get to know yourself, to become intimate with your worth, and to set boundaries that protect your valuable resources, your time, your light, your care. I want you to know that you will have the things you want, love, a family, a home. You will build things that were not your birthright, but you will also make a lot of mistakes and when it will be hard for you to learn the lesson that you do not have to be right or have it all figured out. And only then will you start to soften, ask for help, be patient, trust, and see that people can show up for you in the ways you need. You are incredible at taking action. You can make shit happen. It is only when you allow yourself to be honest about what you really want to yourself and to name it, that you will see the prayers and the wishes for your life answered. I believe in you. When in doubt, ask yourself, does this bring me harmony? Does this make me prosper? Is there synergy? These questions and your total badassery will give you the guidance you need. Holy shit, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I'm like really misty over that. That's really wonderful. It's so insightful. I wish, I mean, I feel like that letter could be to a lot of people, including myself, of how hard you've worked and how hard I've worked just like beating our heads against something that just won't work, you know, and that it's really a more internal softening that we all kind of need and forgiveness and patience with ourselves. I really have so much of it for other people and so little of it for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can see that with you as well. Like there's just such a strong drive to do things really well. I love the part of like, you don't have to be the best at anything. <laughs> it's such a relief, you know? <laughs> We're told a lot like, oh, you can make mistakes. That's fine. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Just that it doesn't have to be perfection all the time. It's so disarming. And I think the thing that was coming up for me when writing that letter and just thinking about some of my patterns and um, hangups is just this idea of like having to work to be mm -hmm. loved. Yeah. And what's interesting is that when we taught this class, I'm in like, teaching mode, right? So I'm doing the exercise, but I don't think I ever really went back and reread it. 
And Mm -hmm. one of the things in our prompt to folks in that class is to put the letter away or like email it to yourself and six months later, like set a reminder to read it. And so when I, I knew you had found your journals and I was like, I don't have high school journals. What do I have? And then I found this and I was like, wow, I should read this to myself all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. (laughs) Yeah. Looking back at this as this like grounding, anchoring message. Yeah. It's a beautifully written letter and it's so all-encompassing. It would be really interesting also as you reread it, if there's something that you feel should be added to it over time. Mm-hmm. As you further your journey and you see more patterns and more realizations over time. I love that. It was beautiful. Yeah. I love also you're treating yourself now as the person who needs the guidance and the care and mm-hmm. imagine your future self writing to you now. And I haven't really done that. And I'd be curious about kind of how to build on this, like the through line of what you're discovering right now of like healing your younger self heals yourself now. I'm not quite sure where, like what the messages are that I need right now. I know that there is a lot in this letter that is very meaningful to me in this moment. But I actually think that doing the process of writing from my future self to my current self might be that evolution of the message. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. How long ago did you write that? It was probably a year ago. Oh, maybe nine months. So yeah, that's really beautiful. I love that. You're going to bless us with another poem. Okay. So in 1999, I am now 19. I am in Muncie, Indiana, where I discovered my kink family. I also was dating a woman. um, And I would go to these, (laughs) to this coffee shop. So this is the 90s. Um, Just imagine the 90s, late 90s, coffee shops, people did spoken word. So I was at the queerest coffee shop that Muncie could muster. We had a little lesbian group that I hung out with and we would go to this place and I did a number of spoken words. I'm going to try to um, rekindle that cadence that comes with (laughs) spoken word. Yes, (laughs) This is of the time. Recently discovered uh, yellow jackets and have been totally vibing on the yellow jacket soundtrack so everybody put on that soundtrack yeah. and take your yes. back to the coffee shops of the late night this was i was deep in ani defranco land uh-huh. at this okay. time yeah so you can imagine this was i was starting to come into my feminist rebellion phase okay this is called application Behold my bloody plastic applicator of dirty decadence. Touch it, love it, rub it on your body, and write illegal words on the tile of the bathroom wall. But don't worry your little head about it because there is a madness to my method. I want to menstruate. I will jump into your pool and turn it a pretty shade of pink like the pink on her painted lips. Because I got so much clit, I don't need no balls. 
And you may think that I'm a dirty, crazy PMS bitch. And I am because I'm not going to bathe. I'm not going to shave. And you may come home to find me masturbating behind your big screen as a pool of unused uterine lining fills your DVD player. And you will be disgusted and you will call the pigs. But I never get caught. I am invisible and invisible, but you like it that way. So behold my plastic applicator of antiquity and prepare for the reproductive massacre to ravage your menial existence. Wow. <laughs> There's madness to my method is great. I, I love yeah. this like early, uh, you know, Robin as a performer. I've got a clit so big I don't need no balls yep that's right so good (laughs) good okay there is an arc here that I am really loving I feel like this poem speaks to that younger self that was like masturbating and thinking that like your hands are um only give you like give you no orgasms and stinky fingers right look at right. the evolution i love it yeah yeah in just 5 years <laughs> what uh what were your when you reread that what did did you did you feel some pride i did i did i was i was really when i picked up that book and i realized it was full of spoken word i was like oh no Oh, no. And there are some real bad ones in there. There's some bad ones. But when I read that, I was like, oh, I think this is like the beginning of me, like you were saying, being a performer. This is the beginning of me wanting to wear black teeth and stuff like that. This is like trying to intrude on the things that we're not supposed to talk about and the niceties of civil society. (laughs) So. I, Maybe I should I should read I do a reading of this at at the at cruise sometime. Yeah, at the yeah, Eagle or our um, <laughs> live show. The, some of these spoken <laughs> words have to come out. I I love this so much. And um, the whips we definitely had a menstruation piece as well. And I think it is like so liberating and super. You know, when someone first is like really embracing their feminism that like embracing mm-hmm. menstruation is a big part of that. For the whips, we did like a red tent installation because uh, women used to be sent off mm-hmm. to the red tent to like, b- they were shunned from society and had to menstruate separate from the village. But what happened is that there was real community that formed because you know women would be menstruating together and supporting each other and like off kind of in their own world. And like, what a relief. Oh, I would love to do that now. Please. Let's start the red tent thing. I'd be like, I'm red tenting this week. Yeah. Just going to hang out with the bitches. I love. So it was like, it ended up being this really interesting reclamation where uh, there was like a sisterhood that would form, um, during you know menstruating periods and you you got to know that if you're living in like a small village like everyone's menstruating at the same time yeah right <laughs> oh, so nice I have to say that that piece really um that was a really high note to end on <laughs> I did want to ask you as the season is coming to a close 
you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that been a lot of like personal growth that's come from this experience. And I guess I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts as we are heading into our very last episode of season one. I mean, I have nothing but thoughts. I'm just, it's just so fascinating to me what that first episode was about. It felt insightful at the time and, and it was my real realness. And I've just come so far rather than chasing the feeling. I think now if we were to do that interview again, it would be about sitting with the feeling, existing in the feeling, feeling all the feelings and being okay with it. My sobriety, I don't want to like be a sobriety preacher and I'm definitely not saying it's for everybody, but for me, it's been such a huge part of realizing that me being not stoned or doing drugs is not only okay, it's a almost like a higher level for me to just be actually myself and to be okay with that and to enjoy that rather than trying to numb myself and escape within myself. You know, I had a dream the other night where my gravity was not working the way other people's gravity was working. And I was having sideways gravity. So like my body on the side was being pulled to the ground and I was constantly having to pull on things to make myself upright. And I was trying to pretend like it wasn't happening. And I've had a lot of these dreams where like my teeth are disintegrating and I'm trying to pretend like it's not happening. And one of the things that I was reading from my 20s was I was really high on coke and trying to pretend like I wasn't. And I wasn't sure if these other people I was talking to could tell because I was like, I think I was coming off like manic. This is the thing that I've always tried to do. It shows up in all of these journals of me trying to present a certain way that I'm not. I think I try to do it with myself as well of like, you should be more like this, just fake it till you make it, you know, you don't feel good. So just get high and then you'll feel good. But I just really have to sit with myself and just be who I am and be very accepting of that. And doing this podcast has been a big part of me coming to that realization. So has me getting on the right medication. So has me doing like a really intense therapy this whole time. But so much of this podcast has been about being embodied, being your truest self, loving yourself for all of the things that make you unique. It's been a huge, wonderful journey for me, and I am definitely better for it. So thank you, Sarah, for choosing me as your co-host. And thank you, listeners, for showing up and listening. It's been really wonderful for me. <laughs> so yeah. How have you felt, Sarah? <laughs> Interesting to reflect back on. It was probably about a year ago. I think it was actually in March of last year that we had our first conversation. I remember thinking like, I just know that I want this podcast to be about really sharing authentic stories that I wanted for the most part, at least from the start for us to interview folks that we knew so that we really had that in to get to the real, real story mm -hmm. <laughs> and through that process give people that kind of insight that I think that 
we share with our close circle of friends that we're not sort of held back by this. You've got to present a certain way or you've got to like fit within these societal molds. Like there's very much in our circle of co-conspirators, friends, a drive towards finding authenticity. Mm -hmm. For me, when I think about some of the stuff that has to kind of get unpacked um, to be able to show up to do this, it's like really, I mean, this letter kind of addresses it is that thing of like, it doesn't have to be fucking perfect and you still do it. And also, you know, something going back to our first episodes of realizing, I think some of my arc with this has been, you know, you pointed out, you met me when I was running the pleasure chest. And when I think back to that time and what has guided a lot of my career has been like, you have to present a certain way. You've got to really have it together, like flawless. And the authentic expression or being really um, my full self in all the spaces that I exist in is not something that's been very comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. I think because of this perfectionism drive that I've had from a really young age. And so I think that this podcast has freed me up from that a little bit, like allowed me to speak in draft allowed me to like share these amazing conversations that I have in my day-to-day life in like a public forum with the Tina episode where we talked about a topic that made me really nervous about to publicly like consensual non-consent. These are the kinds of conversations I love to dive into, but then suddenly you put them into like a medium that is consumable by other people, by my family. <laughs> like, right. I'm like, oh, this is definitely testing my values and like how I want to live with a real openness and a real sharing of my whole self. This has really put that into action and been an embodiment of those principles. And I am really, I'm so happy that we've done it. Yeah. And I'm really excited for a little bit of downtime for us to reflect back, do our debrief process, and then really kind of Mm -hmm. set the direction and the tone for season two. Yeah. Yeah. So we only have one episode after this one. With with an amazing witch. Witch Wild. Witch Wild is going to teach us about sex magic. And then we're going to take a little break and come back for season two, which where will the journey lead us, Sarah? We don't <laughs> quite know. We don't know until, until we get there. We will find out. Um, and in the meantime, please find us on Instagram or TikTok at... Fuck yeah pod. Email us fyapod at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. We want your reviews. We want your subscriptions so that you can stay updated on when we return with season two. And I'm super excited about episode 20. I think it's going to be really good. It's going to be wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Bye. Bye. Yeah.
knocking them out of the park. Fuck Yeah podcast is produced and hosted by me, Sarah Tom Chesson, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is produced and performed by she, her, sir. You can find out more about what we're up to at fuckyeahpod.com or reach out directly at fyeahpod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the pod, give us a hand, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen, and make sure to share it with a few friends. Thanks so much for tuning in.